don't worry, I'll give us all a bit of an overview of where I was back in March or February or whenever it was back then that I was here. And uh, I'll get to finish off this little letter that I started last time. So, Third John, it's an unfamiliar text to most of us. Um, some of Most of us have probably read it. Probably one or a half of us can remember some of it. Um, and at first, it sort of strikes us as being possibly something of a nothing letter, but I think that as we go into it, some of us will be reminded of what I said last time, but we'll see other things that I didn't point out last time that I wanted to bring out this time. Uh, and I think that we'll see that it really is important, and it's, almost, it's a striking letter, it's a helpful letter. Um, as we think through it and, and we look at it. So what better way to get familiar with an unfamiliar piece of scripture than by reading it? So here we are, we'll read it. Letter of Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So this, this letter focuses around three people. The first is Gaius. The second is Diotrephes, and then further down in verse 12, uh, this guy Demetrius is mentioned. I want to really focus in on Diotrephes and, and Gaius. And last time I talked about Gaius, I said that he's an example that truth is both loved and lived. And we see that because he's things that John says about him is that he's walking in the truth. He's welcomed these brothers that have gone from John to this church, and he's, he's welcomed them in, even though they're strangers to Gaius. And, and more than that, he's not just welcomed them. He's, he's gone to great efforts in showing hospitality to them. He has loved them as though they were his own family. And so John is commending him for, these, for this hospitality. And then meanwhile, there's another figure in that church who John is writing to, 
And that's this figure of Diotrephes. And last time I said that he's an example of, of toxic pride and selfish ambition. And Diotrephes, he, he rejects John's authority. John is an apostle who has been charged with the care over, over this church and other churches. And Diotrephes rejects his authority. And not only does he reject John's authority, he's speaking wicked nonsense against him. He refuses to welcome these brothers that have come from John. And he also prevents those who, who try to welcome them. And he tries to kick people out of the church who welcome these brothers. And so as we look at these two figures in this letter, and we try and, and I try and think about conclusions of things, what to say, it could be tempting to just make these two figures examples. I could say, be like Gaius, don't be like Diotrephes. And that, but that would be, that would be gospel-less. There would be no gospel in that. It would be a sermon without Christ, even though he might be mentioned. And yet, I think this letter is, is super clear that Gaius and, and Demetrius, um, these two, these two characters of, 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 these two people with good character, Demetrius is spoken highly of, um, they, they do not have a, a good, Testimony because they have a, a superior moral example that they're following. They don't, they're not bearing good fruit because they're mimicking someone. They have good fruit because the gospel has taken root in their lives and that is, and that is showing through. Gospel-centered love literally bleeds through this letter. When I read verses 2 to 4 at the start, you can almost since the, the, the very words of Jesus that we read about in John's gospel, the way that John writes here, he says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Um, I rejoice greatly with the brothers and when the brothers came and testified to your truth. In verse 4 he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And that truth has taken root in Gaius's life, it's taken root in, in Demetrius's life, and that is and that is coming through. And so even though we, we don't have a a clear, explicit explanation of what that truth is in this passage, there are plenty of other places that we can look. And the place that I want to take us to this morning is is John chapter thirteen, verses one through to twenty. And so if you want, we're going to be reading all 20 verses, and we're going to be, I want to bring out a few things there because they'll help us um, apply this little letter. And now the context of John chapter 13 is that they, this is Jesus with his disciples. He's in the upper room on the night before he, on the night that he's going to be betrayed. And John said, John records many things that Jesus said for us in this section from John chapter 13 through to uh, verse 7 through to chapter 17. But this, this section here is the bit that focuses on when Jesus washes his, the disciples' feet. And so Judas is here. He's in the room. He's about to go and betray Jesus. And so that's why as we, as we read it, we'll see these mentions of, of Judas in this passage. So, This is John chapter 13, verse 1 through to the 20, the whole section. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was, for he knew who was going to betray him, which is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So there's a few things I want to highlight from this this epic passage. Um, first is in verse 1 where it says that Jesus had loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And John, John Calvin he points out in this passage that, that we have no reason to doubt that Christ's heart is any different toward us than it was for his disciples. That the same love that is shown here by Jesus to his disciples is the same love that Jesus himself shows to us today for us as, as, we, are his, as we are his disciples on earth. If we were in that room, then Christ too would have washed our feet. And then verse as we as we go through this passage we see this this conflict, this this challenge rising up from, from Peter, this conversation that goes on. That's we're gonna focus on a bit more. But the Jesus says in verse ten, I'm gonna be a little bit around I'm gonna start in verse ten and then sort of work backwards a bit. So verse ten says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. It's sort of a little bit hard for us to, to understand that at first. But 2,000 years ago in Israel, there was a lot of dust. They didn't have cars. They didn't have, they didn't have paved roads. They had, dusty paved, they had dusty streets, or at best Roman roads with covered in desert dust. 
And so even if you had a, a bath and you were clean and you took just a short walk outside, you would collect dust all over your feet. So you would still be clean yourself, but your feet would have become dirty. And this, I think this illustrates something of the Christian identity. That Christ has, has cleansed us by forgiving us of our sins through his substitutionary death. We are clean in his eyes because we have accepted Christ's righteousness uh, and, his, and his perfect work on our behalf by faith. We have received all of the benefits of that through faith. So we are clean, and yet we still have our feet in the world. We still collect dust on our feet. And so it isn't, it isn't right for us to think that we are clean and we have no more need of repentance. We are clean ultimately and, and, and finally, but we still collect dust. And so there is that continual need to, to repent of the sin that lingers in our hearts and lives and it flares up in various ways. We recognize that, that Christ has already provided for us ongoing forgiveness at the cross and must also continue to repent. And it's important for the Christian identity because we do not live as a when we when we go to God when we when we fall short we do not we don't live as a servant in a house who fears being fired when you've broken some valuable vase. If you can imagine that scenario, a servant in a house they break something valuable in the house and they would go to their their master and they would say, well. Please don't fire me. This is what's happened. But they they have no security in their relationship that that relationship would endure. But for the for the Christian, we do not. We are not servants in God's house. We are sons. We are we are His children. When we when we fall short, as we as we as we sin, even even willingly sin, we. Repent as sons, knowing that our relationship with our Father cannot be changed. That's a relationship that can't be changed because we are His son, we are His daughter, and so yes, things have, yes, we have made a mistake, but that fundamental relationship will not be changed. That is what it is for the Christian. Verses eight and nine, we see Peter just getting into this conflict with Christ. He says, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I, do not wash your, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter replied to him and said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Peter, he initially refuses uh, this, this move of Jesus to clean his feet. And then he then overreacts. <laughs> Not suppose it, so he doesn't. Not so he overreacts, not supposedly recognizing that he's already been cleansed by Jesus by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. He's already been clean, and yet he asks for him to be completely washed. And Jesus, said, oh, only only your feet need to be washed. But Peter, he initially refuses because he finds it unthinkable that he should have his feet cleansed by his Lord. Why should his, why should his Lord, why should his King, why should the one who he loves and, and, um, and, and, and worships stoop down to wash his feet? Peter should be doing this for Christ. But we, we too, 
must be humbled in order to be washed. Peter needed to humble himself to be washed. Jesus was humbling himself in order to wash to wash Peter's feet, but Peter himself also needed to be humble to receive that washing. And we must we must all recognize that that apart from Christ, apart from Christ if we were to stand before him on our own without Jesus standing as our mediator, that we too are filthy and immobitable. We need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. We need to, we need to humble ourselves to realize that we are who we are, that we are sinners, that we do fall short, and that we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot patch ourselves up. We need someone who is perfect to clean us. And this can only be Christ. And so only he can help us. We need someone who has cleaned themselves to clean us. And Christ shows great humility, I think, in his desire to cleanse us. And so to receive his cleansing, we too must be humble. We need his help. We do not come before Christ to serve him as though he needs help. But he serves us as because we are the ones who need help. Christ stooped low. He, he condescended in his coming to us to, to wash us, to cleanse us, to present us to the Father on our behalf. We could not do this on our own. And so Christ came. He condescended. He washes us. He does this work. And we need to continually be served by Christ in this way. We need to be to be washed by him continuously. And just as an aside, as an application of this, this is one of the reasons why church is so central to the Christian life. We do not come to church to offer something wonderful to God that he can be impressed with. That's not why we come to church. Rather, we walk in with dusty hearts and dusty feet with the recognition that we are in continual need of grace. We join together in prayer through singing. We listen to him through the word. We see his, his promises of mercy and grace in the supper. And we are sent out into the world through the benediction with confidence, set in him and not ourselves. Church is central to the Christian life because it consistently points us to, out to us the fact that we are dusty, and yet also reminds us of the security that we have as his sons and daughters. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and then he, in verses 14 and 15, he says these words. He pushes it back onto them. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So we see in these passages this, this clear imperative that Jesus is saying that as I have done for you, so now you also must do for others. You must do this for each other. It's this clear command and the reason he gives this command is just because he has he's done this this work that shows that he has cleansed them, that he has washed their feet. Now we too are to do likewise. That that imperative, that command is based on this indicative, what Christ has already done. And so just before we, we turn back to John to third John, 
I want to just bring out quickly this verse 20 of John 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And that's important for us as we go into, into third John again, as we look at the way that Gaius has operated and the way that, that Diotrephes has operated. So John writes to Gaius, and John's personally encouraged um, by the way that, that Gaius has received these brothers, that these brothers have, have gone out for the sake of Christ, only being supported by the church. They're not receiving support from the Gentiles and being supported by the church. And this is how the kingdom advances, through the proclamation of the gospel and the planting of churches. And this often comes at great sacrifice for those called to this task. And often us, many of us, as, as lay people, we, we can look at these people and think, well, they're doing the Lord's work. Perhaps you think this way. Perhaps you think that, that pastors or, or elders, that they are, they are doing this great work and you can look back on your own work and you can be dissatisfied with your own work. And you might want to just leave that to undertake this, this great task, this great gospel work. Or another, another temptation, another, another pitfall might be that you think that your work is not as valuable as God's, in God's eyes as the work that elders and pastors are undertaking. So there's two pitfalls there. One is, is getting dissatisfied with our own work and then wanting to leave to go and do something that we perceive as being more important. Or secondly, another, another pitfall related to that is that we look at these pastors and elders and think, they're doing God's work, my work isn't as valuable as that. Let's look at Third John verse 8. He says, John writes, he says, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John doesn't just take the work of these brothers as, the, as, they, as they are the ones going around to these various churches and, and, and preaching the word and, and, and encouraging, encouraging other people around the place. John doesn't just say that work is valuable but he validates and he gives huge value on the whole support network that is behind them, that supports them. So whether you are undertaking the work or you are supporting the work, both roles have equal value and importance in the scope of the kingdom. We says that as we, as we support, as we give, as we pray, as we meet practical needs, we become fellow workers for the truth. William Barclay, uh, a famous um, biblical teacher in the early 20th century, said this about, about this text. He said, A man's circumstances may be such that he cannot become a missionary or a preacher. Life may have put him in a position where he must get on with a secular job and where he must stay in one place and carry out the routine duties of his life and living. But where he cannot go, his money and his prayers and his practical support can go. And if he gives that support, he has made himself an ally of the truth. 
It is not everyone who can be, so to speak, in the front line, but every man, by supporting those who are in the front line, can make himself an ally of the truth. And so we see here the whole scope of work within the kingdom has an equal value, whether those specific people who are called to, to go into ministry and to, and to do this for their lives, that has huge value. But equally so, huge value is placed upon those who support, who pray, who give, who meet the practical needs of those who go. The, all, everyone in the whole kingdom and the church works together as one with an equal value. So if you cannot go, your money can go. Your prayers can go. Practical support. Financial, spiritual, physical matters are all important and creates a host of ways in which everyone can be fellow workers in the advance of the gospel. We are all able to work together to support the advance of the gospel. And so in light of that truth about Gaius and the way that he is exemplified, then Diotrephes becomes, and his behavior, it becomes even more shocking. In, in verse 11, John gives this clear imperative. He says, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And clearly he is using Diotrephes as an example of, of evil. He has set himself up within this church as a type of sole authority. And he's trying to stop anyone else from, from having input into that church. And sadly today, the church is still full of these types of men. But as we read this, we can see that this issue has been within the visible church since the beginning. There has always been individuals who have, who have stood up within churches or stood up and tried to make themselves leaders and and, and, and try and push other people away um, to, to, to gather this group around them. We see all different figures like that uh, throughout history and today. And so we need to safeguard against these types of people. But to do that, we need to be aware of what we can do. We need to be aware of what to look out for. And, and I think some helpful things for us um, to consider can be some of these. We need to first of all we need to be aware of of lone wolf figures, those who are who are just pushing against others that are that are setting themselves up as their own authority, who are just down talking others, this gossip and malicious talk around others for, so that they can gather gather their own following around their specific teaching, their specific revelation, making themselves unique. That's dangerous. <laughs> Because God's given us all equal access to the revelation of himself to us through his word. We all have equal access to this. And with that becomes equal, equal responsibility to be able to read the word, to find out what God has said, to see God as he has revealed himself. And not just to come up with a revelation of that on our own, but to but to first of all see that clearly in the scripture and then to second and then secondly test that against the scope of history we do not just we do not stand in in first century christianity 
and, and have to work these things out for ourselves. God used the apostles for that purpose, and we have that revelation recorded for us in the scripture, and, and history has built upon that revelation. History has helps us to understand greater and greater the authority that was that is within God's word and the revel and what it reveals to us. So we all have equal access and we all have equal revelation through his word of himself. We have access to that revelation. But we do not just stand as our owner in that. We God has also given the church qualified elders and teachers who uphold the teaching of the apostles, who understand the teaching that is within Scripture, who, who proclaim that, who uphold that, and who defend that truth from error. God has given us shepherds. He's given us overseers to help protect the truth and to proclaim the truth. Those are some things that will that will keep us um, aware of danger figures like diotrophies. We must be aware of them. And so we see in this letter these two great figures, Gaius and Diotrephes. Gaius as an example of of someone to to emulate, someone to to gain encouragement from that that we too are to support and encourage those in ministry that we are to, and that as we support them or as we go, that we have equal standing with them. And then secondly, with diatrophies, that, that these are people to watch out for. And we must recognize God's revelation of himself to us in the scriptures and the way that that revelation has been carried forward throughout history. We must, we must be aware of those pitfalls. So we have much to learn from the small letter. So let us be aware of the pitfalls like diatrophies and be, let us be quick to serve and support those who are proclaiming the gospel. Let us join with them in their work. Let us look to Christ for continual washing where we fail and trust him that he is building his church through our largely feeble steps of obedience. So let's pray.